Amen. Well, good morning, Grace Church. How are you? Good? You look good? Uh, it's good to see you. If you need a Bible, you can raise your hand. Patty would love to hand you a Bible so you can see that what we're reading is from the Scriptures. Uh, you would raise a hand if you were at the men's conference this weekend. Anybody? Amen. Amen. Yeah, we are tired, but we are full. Uh, some of the guys, their arms are sore from the, uh, the game you play with the hacky sacks. You know what that's called? You know, it's cornhole. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah. It was an epic cornhole battle that uh, we experienced over in the youth room. Uh, we had a good time together this weekend, and it was very fun. We had 55 men show up. So, fellas, uh, we, yeah, way to go. It was awesome. It was awesome. Very cool. So, uh, a couple weeks ago in our house church, we were playing a game to get to know everyone, and we're sitting in a circle, and the game was called uh, Questions in a Box, and it's an app you can download on your phone, and the, if you're in my house church, you're already laughing. So, uh, the Questions in a Box game, you would hand the uh, phone to the person next to you, and they would pick what type of question they were going to answer for the group to kind of get to know them, and there was four levels of questions. Level one is, we just met. Level two is we're acquaintances, level three is good friends, and level four is big picture. And based on the uh, selection you made that would give you the, the question and, and kind of had different levels of, of what you would answer. So questions like, uh, what's your first family trip you remember as a kid? Or if you could meet someone in history and have dinner with them, who would it be? Or what book are you reading right now? Or how did you meet your best friend? And so everyone's having a good time. And it gets to me, and I click the button, and here's my question. Do you believe organized religion is currently serving its purpose in the world? And I'm like, <laughs> come on, man. Like, I already work at a church. I'm trying to play it cool here in the circle. And it's awful. So I'm like, pass, pass, get out of there. Uh, that question killed the vibe completely, as you can imagine. And me being so lame, I like start to answer the question. I'm like, guys, I'm so sorry. I quit. Like, next question. Move along. Um, and I, you, some of you are like, why, Josh? You really had a moment there. Uh, do, you, do you know the people that like take lighthearted moments and make them super serious and philosophical? Like, those like just suck the air out of the room kind of people. And you're like, man, the Golden State Warriors won the championship. And they're like, Jesus is my warrior and he won the championship. You're like, <laughs> you guys are the worst. And I'm a Christian, and you're the worst. It's bad. I binge-watched the TV show last night, and you're like, I binge-prayed last night. And you're like, too much. Too much. So in studying Mark chapter 7 this week, I was like, there's some connection between my question in the box and what we're about to experience here in Mark chapter 7 with Jesus engaging the Pharisees, because we've talked about this. We're not following Jesus in a vacuum. We are following Jesus, trying to live out the way of Jesus, trying to bring the kingdom of God to, to bear in our world. But we're not doing that in a vacuum. We're doing that in San Diego in 2022. And so there's some implications to this text in our culture. And right now, there is a significant rise in our culture of people, uh, the, the term is deconstructing their faith. And all that means is this. Uh, people are questioning things that previously seemed to be unquestionable. So they're questioning things. And, and often it's because they're having new experiences. And a lot of this conversation has been catalyzed by people who experience church hurt. 
Like the church hurt them. The church in some ways was just judgmental to them or condemning to them. And in its worst form, the church was abusive to them. And so there's a group that's, that's rising of people that felt like they've been judged or not protected or condemned. And they had legitimate experiences of being hurt by the church. And so they're, they're processing that. And they're asking big questions, expecting big answers. And so we as Grace Church, we talk a lot about wanting to be a safe place for wherever you are in your journey. Uh, but as we enter this today, uh, we're going to look at how Jesus engaged with the religious elite of his time and how he responded to the, the church in power, so to say, in his time and how those dynamics work. And so in Mark chapter 7, so far, we've been seeing Jesus do a lot of miracles and the action, you know, this, this immediately Jesus did this action. But today we're actually going to see some long form teaching from Jesus. We have been seeing his actions, but today we get some of his teachings. And this is, this is why we've been borrowing from the other gospels sometimes to kind of inform the actions of Jesus with the teaching of Jesus. But today in Mark 7, we get some teaching. So here we go. Teaching of Jesus, Mark chapter 7, verse 1. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem, they gathered around Jesus. And they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is unwashed. We've, we've talked a lot about unclean versus clean, how important that is. And so the Pharisees, they come, the religious leaders come. Just, just to give you some background, from Jerusalem to where Jesus is right now is 90 miles. Not an easy journey. But again, remember two weeks ago, you've got this, this massive feeding of 5,000. You've got Jesus walking on water. His influence is huge. His reach is huge. He has now garnered the attention of the religious leaders, and they are willing to walk 90 miles, treacherous journey, multiple-day journey, to catch up with Jesus and start to follow him around. And the first thing they notice is the, the disciples are eating, and they're not washing their hands. And so in verse 5, uh, which, by the way, isn't actually a law. It's just a tradition of the elders. So in verse 5, so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they asked Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, underline that, instead of eating their food with defiled hands? So again, they come 90 miles, they do all this journey, and what's their complaint? They get around Jesus and they're like, Jesus, we have a, a complaint for you. We would like to lodge a protest. And Jesus is like, okay, cool. What's your protest? What's your complaint? And he says, your disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. We came all this way to tell you that. Not cool, Jesus. And that's on you. They're your disciples and they're not washing their hands and they should be washing their hands. It's not, by the way, this is not about hygiene. This is about power. This is about ritualistic law. And they're looking for a reason to condemn Jesus. And the authority in Jerusalem, the capital city, the, the, the religious leaders, they are looking for a way to condemn Jesus. And they're holding him responsible for his disciples not washing their hands. So, again, the law is not being broken. Sin is not happening. But they're being, they're being pressed upon by the traditions of these religious leaders. And they tell Jesus, why, why are you letting your guys have defiled hands? And uh, Jesus' response is very spicy, well, to say the least. <laughs> to say the least. I love, like, don't, like, just be careful messing with Jesus. Verse 6, he replied, Isaiah was right, which is just a, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. All those chapters in the Old Testament, that guy, he was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. 
These brothers walk 90 miles. The first words Jesus tells them is, Isaiah was right, you hypocrites. It's bold. As it is written, these people, you guys, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, and they teach merely human rules. They have let go of the commands of God, and they are holding on to human traditions. Released the law of God. It's actually sin if you break that. And they now hold fast to human traditions. And so in the scripture, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus has two enemies. Satan and his demons are one enemy. And now Jesus has set himself up against the religious leaders. They are his enemy. To call them hypocrites is no small thing. What is a hypocrite? In in the ancient world, a hypocrite was an actor. They they were uh, someone who played a role or a part before a king. And and think theater, like that their whole life is theater. They're pretending. They they live, they they have this life, but then they take on a separate life. That's what it means to be hypocrites. A hypocrite, and, and Jesus says, the prophet Isaiah, he warned us about you. You are among the people who like to honor me with your lips externally, but internally you have no desire to be near to me. You're far from me. You worship me in vain. When you worship, it's empty. When you pray, it's empty. When you gather before God, it's empty. It's in vain. Because you care about human traditions more than you care about the law. In the end, you're not actually worshiping God. You're worshiping power. You're worshiping yourself. You're worshiping your control. And here's the accusation against the Pharisees. The accusation is very simple. Your internal life and your external life are not consistent. Your internal life and external life, they are not the same. Jesus' desire for his followers is pretty simple. He desires that you would live one life, not two. You would live one life. I'm like, Josh, what does that mean? It means who you are here is who you are there, which 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 is who you are there, because you, you have one life. Your private life and your public life are the same. Who you are here is who you are on Saturday night. It's who you are at the baseball game. It's who you are at the gym. It's who you are. Wherever you are, there you are. Who you are when no one is looking is the same person that you are when everyone is looking. Your bank account is connected to who you are. Your internet web browsing history is the same as who you are. How you treat the vulnerable and how you treat the powerful, those are the same. You have one life. And the Pharisees had a double life. And Jesus said, Isaiah told us about you. You hypocrites. And now you're trying to bring that stuff against my disciples? You hypocrites. 27 times Mark mentions the scribes and the Pharisees, and each time he exposes how they twisted the scriptures to rob us of life and joy, to rob you of life and joy. The power that they yielded came from their tradition, not from the word of God. And the Jewish, uh, the, the, the Pharisees, they wanted to control everyone's life by slowly chipping away at any so- sort of freedom because it gave them more power. One commentator I read this week called the Pharisees that they participated in what he called regulation madness. Regulation madness. They regulated everything. They governed people to death. So the Pharisees, they would read the law of God. They would teach the law of God. Then they would add to the law of God. And then what they said would then become a regulation above and beyond the law of God. And then they would walk the streets putting into practice through their authority the things they had added to the law instead of what the law actually said. And Jesus is saying to them, human tradition is not the law. 
Or as theologian R.C. Sproul says, he says, every time you add to the law of God, it is inevitably a subtraction. Every time you add to the law of God, it's inevitably a subtraction. And listen, you know that this is playing out right now in our world too, right? You know that this is playing out right now in our church as well. There are so many ways that we have a temptation to overlay human tradition on the law of God. So many ways. Guys, I went to a Christian college. You have no idea how pharisaical I was in college. You have no idea. Our college had so many rules, and some of them are good because they kept us crazy kids in line and bound up. But I remember there was this great controversy at our Christian college about whether or not we could have dances. Dancing. Guys, I'm not making this up. You could dance. You're thinking I'm joking, but I'm not. You could dance as long as your feet didn't move. So like you could do this, but you couldn't do this. No, 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 this. We made it up, just a new law, made it up. You couldn't dance. And the joke at our school is that uh, we were against, we, this, this is, I shouldn't share this, but I'm going to share it. And if you don't like it, I won't tell the 11 o'clock. But here was the joke we would share. Uh, the joke was that our school was against premarital sex because it led to dancing. <laughs> you'll, you'll catch it later. You'll catch it later. But there's so many things we add on top. Like, can, can, can people wear lipstick? Like, that, like, that's a thing. Like, can women wear lipstick? Yes or no. Can, can we drink alcohol? Yes or no. How much? What's not enough? Can we even touch it at all? Yes or no. Can we listen to secular music? Whatever that is. You guys know that? Like, I remember going on a mission trip, and I didn't grow up in the church, so we were, it was a mission trip to Africa, and so I brought, like, this huge case of CDs. And if you're young, a CD holds music, and you would put it in a an anti-skip Walkman, and you would listen to music. And so I brought this whole thing, and I flip it out, and, I'm about to, and the guy next to me is like, whoa, secular music. And I'm like, what's secular music? I don't know. Just, it's just music. And so uh, I, I realized pretty quickly, like, bro, put that back in your bag and, like, don't tell anyone. And then I get home, and guys, I'm just going to confess to you all my stuff. I get home, and I find this poster that's like, if you like this secular band, you'll love this Christian artist. So, like, if you like Britney Spears, you'll love Stacey Arico. And you're like... What? So some of you in my generation are like, I know that poster. I know that poster. You know. Christians are like, can we watch R-rated movies or not? And you're like, but the Passion of the Christ is R-rated? Oh, no. Like, I, I can watch that one, but I, yeah. You see, it's, it's a new law. It's a new tradition. The things that are being regulated, and they become a test of piety. And so, like, can pastors and their wives go to boys to men concerts? Yes or no? Because maybe they did that last night. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe. And maybe they had the time of their life. I don't know. I don't know. That could have happened. I don't. That could have happened. And maybe some of you are uncomfortable with that. <laughs> and that's okay. But there's something in this text that says, be careful when you add on and add on and add on. And then that becomes the test of piety. Because th this is, we've, we've been being silly, but stay with me. Uh, what's, what's easier, to not go to the movies or to love your enemy? What's easier? Just don't go to the movies. <laughs> That's a lot easier. What's easier, to not dance or to not have pride? Well, just like don't dance. That's a lot easier. 
it's often easier to make up rules and follow them. It's easier. We're drawn to that. We are checklist Christians. We are. Some of you in the room are rule followers, and you're like, just give me the rules. I'll follow the rules. But if we're not careful, it turns into uh, what, what I would call the gospel of don't. Don't cuss, don't drink, don't dance, don't sex, don't, 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 don't boys to men, don't any R-rated movies except the Passion of the Christ. Don't, 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 don't. You cool? That's church. The gospel of don't. And that steals joy and it steals life because it's adding to the law. And theologically, this is called legalism. Legalism. And here's the definition of legalism. It means to bind people's conscience where God has left them free. To bind people's conscience where God has left them free. To add human regulations above and beyond God's word. That's legalism. And we, as teachers of the word of God, we have no right or authority to bind your conscience. You may not like this tradition or that tradition, that's fine, but you've got to walk in the light you've been given. So I know we were being silly earlier, but honestly, the light you've been given, if you feel like listening to this type of music is not okay for you, then don't. No problem. If you feel like watching these kinds of shows is, is not okay for you, then don't. That's okay. That's between you and the Lord. You have to walk in the light you've been given. Some of, I have friends that like don't watch television because convictionally they think it's a devil box. And I respect them for that. But in the light they've been given, they're like, I can't do it. And praise God for that. Like, they have to walk in the light you've been given. There needs a lot of wisdom here. There needs to, a lot of empathy here. And if what you are doing is causing your brother to stumble, stop. That's, that's in the word. So if you're hearing me say it's a free-for-all, you're missing it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying there are people that have made up a set of rules as a test of piety, and Jesus calls them hypocrites. He says legalism, because here's the danger. Legalism leads to self-righteousness, and self-righteousness is one of the worst forms of unrighteousness. Self-righteousness is one of the worst forms of unrighteousness. You see this in the prodigal son story with the older brother. The prodigal son comes home, and they throw a party, and the older brother's a legalist, and he's like, I'm not going to that party. That guy's a sinner. And he doesn't rejoice in what God is doing to save. So if we want to be a church where the spirit of God saves and redeems and rescues and Jesus renews all things, then we need to be comfortable with some uncomfortable spaces. But that's what it looks like for us to be, to be set free from self-righteousness. And what's crazy about the Pharisees is they had become so infatuated with the mastery of Scripture and, and, and the doctrine being so perfect that they wind up missing Jesus completely. And there are many of us that could fall into that category. Myself, that, that my level of learning has made me vulnerable to pride. That, that your level of mastery of the scriptures has left you vulnerable to missing Jesus completely. In John chapter 5, Jesus tells the Pharisees, you search the scriptures looking for life, but here I stand before you, actually the, the, the life you're looking for, and you won't come to me to have life. So not, Jesus isn't being rude to them. He's being honest with them and prophetic to them and telling them, I'm the one you're looking for. And they miss it. They completely miss it. So Jesus basically tells the Pharisees, don't tell me what my disciples can and cannot do. Do not add your hypocrisy onto my disciples. And Jesus has the authority to say that because Jesus is not just the law obeyer. He is the law giver. He's the one that gave the law. And then he's the one that perfectly obeyed the law. 
And so he can confront the Pharisees head on because he's the one perfectly obeying the law and he is the one that ultimately has given the law. So he says, don't talk to my disciples about washing hands. I know the law. And then in verse 14, the story continues and it says this. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it has to come out of a person. That's what defiles them. And after he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out their body. And saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. And then he went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. It's from within. It's from within that out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come, sexual immorality and theft and murder and adultery and greed and malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Grace Church, your actions and my actions are an overflow of our hearts. And out of the mouth, the heart speaks. What's going on below the surface is far more concerned to Jesus than what's happening externally. Evil comes out of your heart. That's why I tell you, do not follow your heart. Your heart is evil. Jeremiah verse 17. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. But believe it or not, the primary place of authority in our culture right now is your heart. Just do whatever your heart feels. Just whatever makes your heart feel right. Follow your heart. And then Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 the, the last thing you need to be following is your heart. Your heart is the, the place where everything's broken. Your, your heart has no business being the authority on anything. Your heart is wicked above all things. It's broken and deceitful. Jesus says, that's why I'm here. I'm here to, to transform hearts. Jesus is not after behavior modification. He's after heart transformation. He's not interested in you lifelessly accomplishing a checklist. He's interested in changing what you love from the inside out. He doesn't just want you not to sin with bare-knuckled you know, aggression, like, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin. He actually wants you to release control and love something different. He wants you to love him. He wants you to be transformed by him so that you no longer want to sin. He doesn't just want you to not sin. He wants you to not even desire to sin. And listen, that's no easy task, but that's what he's come for. Jesus said, I didn't come here for hands. I came here for hearts. And that's the tension with the Pharisees. So how this plays out in the life of the church is, is, is very interesting. So let me say it like this. In the church, there are two kinds of people. And it's nearly impossible to distinguish them from the outside. That's the tension of this text. That I and others around you, we do not actually know what's going on in your heart. And many of the fallouts that I referenced at the beginning of the sermon, a lot of the deconstruction stuff, like all of that came from people harboring secrets in their heart that ultimately manifested in an explosion and a scandal that was broken. There are two kinds of people in the church, and it's nearly impossible to distinguish them from the outside. But Jesus is teaching us something, that every act of adultery happened in someone's heart before it happened in the world. One reason why pornography is so dangerous is because it's practicing adultery. 
It's secret. It's hidden, and it's in your heart. So what's going on in your heart is ultimately going to be manifested in the world, and Jesus is crystal clear about that. Every act of theft came from something in your heart that made you feel entitled or made you feel greed, and that ultimately manifested itself in theft. Every one of the sins Jesus just referenced said the the epicenter of all that is not the external behavior, but the internal desire. And I want to change what you desire. I want to change what you love. I want to transform you on the inside. And then all that behavioral stuff, that'll come secondary. But in the church, we, we miss it sometimes. You know this, and I know this, that the reason why church hurts so bad when it, when it goes sideways is because we were supposed to be people who were trustworthy. We were supposed to be people who had one life. And when the truth comes out that we were living a double life, that's, that's increasingly painful. That, that's uniquely hurtful. Because this was supposed to be the place where we didn't act like that. But yet here we are. And oftentimes in the church, the danger is giftedness is, is misunderstood for spiritual maturity. That someone's gifted, so they should be out front. They should lead. And so someone who is gifted looks like they're mature. But the problem is giftedness can be faked. You can fake it. You can know when to raise your hands in a song. You can know how to pray. You can know how to do all these things. And you can fake this whole thing. Think about King David and King Saul in the Old Testament. Saul was picked because he looked the part externally. He was tall enough. He had a certain look about him. But when it's David's turn to be king, it's very clear that God was after someone with what? A man after my own heart. I want my king to have my heart. And ultimately, David failed that. So here comes Jesus, the ultimate king, with God's heart. And so you have a great king in Jesus who has lived one life. And he's now offering that to us, saying, live one life, but let it start with your heart. And so Jesus is taking this opportunity with the Pharisees to teach his disciples something really clearly, saying this, I'm much more interested in you having clean hearts than I am interested in you having clean hands. I'm trying to wash your heart. And if I can wash your heart, then you will wash your hands. I've got to get the internal stuff fixed so that we can do the external. So in a church, it's impossible to distinguish from the outside who's who. And that's very dangerous. Number two, uh, we, we cannot hide from God. You cannot hide from God. These Pharisees travel 90 miles and they are instantly exposed before Jesus. He goes, I know who you are. You're a hypocrite. And that's a loving thing for Jesus to do. You cannot hide from God. You, you know that, but do you feel that? Do you recognize that? Do you cannot hide from God? So if it's true that you cannot hide from God, my, my question is then why do we hide from each other? If we've already been exposed before God, and we've already been seen for who we are before God, and we're not concealed before God, then, then maybe our pathway to being people that live one life is, is not being concealed before people. But here's, here's a lie we believe in the church. We believe this. We think confession hurts people. I submit to you, confession does not hurt people. Concealing sin hurts people. Confession does not hurt people. Secret sin is what will kill you. Secret sin in your heart is what will hurt you. You need to guard yourself, not against other people knowing your sin, but you need to guard yourself against hidden sin in your life through confession. 
Guard yourself against being a person who honors God with their lips, but doesn't love him in their hearts. Listen, what's crazy about the book of James, Jesus' little brother James, he writes about confessing of sin, and he says, confess your sins one to another and you'll be healed. One of the ways we fight back against hypocrisy is confession, that we would confess one to another. So let me, let me say it like this. I told the men this yesterday. I said, guys, let me tell you this, and you don't even have to come to church tomorrow. But then they came to church. So you're back. Fellas, maybe you need to hear this twice. Here we go. There, this is a crazy thought. There are times when only confessing your sin to God is actually disobedient to God. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm saying sins that you only confess to God are sins you tend to repeat. But sins you confess to other people and you lay bare confession to other people, those are sins you can actually fight back against. And so Jesus is saying you can't hide from God. I know who you are. But the pathway out of that, all those sins that are in your heart, is to reveal them, to stop concealing, but to tell other people what's going on. Have you ever been in the room when someone had like this gut level, laid bare confession? Have you ever been in the room? It's beautiful. It's powerful. Uh, I remember this, this was back like first year of our church plant up in Washington. Uh, we had, I was a worship pastor in our church. When we first planted the church, I was a worship pastor. And we had a drummer in our church named Mike. And Mike was really faithful to come to church. He was a part of our house church as well, really faithful. And one Sunday, uh, Mike just doesn't come to church and doesn't come to set up. And so we're texting Mike. We don't hear from Mike. And then we go all through church and no one hears from Mike. And we like have to have church with no drummer. No Mike. And then Wednesday comes around for uh, house church, and then Mike just shows up at house church. And I'm like, bro, where have you been? So we're eating, and we're kind of trying to talk to him. He hasn't, he hasn't spoken to anyone in three days. And then we get through food, and then we're about to start our conversation. We weren't playing a fun game that day. We were just going to start the conversation. And uh, we, this was weird just for what this is worth. Mike stands up and takes his hat off in house church, which is just weird socially. We're like, Mike, what are you doing? Like, we don't stand up and take our hat off. Like, what are you about to do, bro? And then he goes on. He's like, hey, Josh, can I share something? We're like, uh, you're standing and you took your hat off. So, yeah, obviously you can. The floor is yours, Mike. And then Mike goes on to talk about um, that he got so blacked out drunk on Saturday night that then he was uh, in a vehicle. He wasn't driving, and, and he was so messed up. He, he fell out of the passenger side of this vehicle. He ends up in the hospital. He had been in the hospital for three days, not responding to anyone. He got out of the hospital, and the first place he went was house church. And he comes to our house church, and he gets some food. And he just starts weeping, like, in front of everyone, just saying, I'm so sorry. Like, I dishonored God. I fell back into sin. It's not who I want to be. It's never going to happen again. Like, Josh, I'm sorry. I left the band down in church. And he just confesses and lays bare his sin before us. And it was the most powerful thing I'd ever seen. And that was his way of saying, I'm not going to honor God with my lips, but have a heart that's far from him. But there's something in the church that says we have to pretend here. That this really isn't that safe. That the thing we're supposed to do here is just conceal our sin. And I, I submit to you, some of us aren't healed because we are not confessing our sin. Some of us aren't seeing the Holy Spirit's movement in our life because we're not confessing our sin one to another and we're missing out on the beauty of this. Taking responsibility to confess your sins is a pattern of the Christian life that Jesus designed. 
It's a pattern of it. So can you imagine what it would look like, look like if you went to someone today? You went to someone today and you said this. Hey, I, I need you to know that I am so sorry. That, listen, I know you've been going through a hard time. And the truth is, I've been celebrating your failures behind your back. And I want you to know I'm so sorry. That in my heart, I've been harboring celebration that you're failing. Now watch what happens in that level of vulnerability and that level of confession. Imagine going to someone and telling them, um, I'm sorry I have to confess this to you, but I have been comparing myself to you so much, and I hate it. And I compare myself to you, and I don't like what it feels like, so I end up gossiping about you behind your back. Would you forgive me? That's what it looks like to not have lips that honor God, but a heart that is far from him. If you're a student in here and you went to a teacher and said to your teacher, I cheated on the test and I am sorry and I need to tell you no matter the consequence. The Holy Spirit would meet you in that moment, maybe like never before in your life. Because that's when the power of the gospel is experienced, not just spoken. It's actually experience. If you're a college student and you went to your parents and you said, Mom and Dad, I actually party every weekend. I rarely go to class and I pretend like everything's great, but the truth is my life is a mess. Would you forgive me? The Spirit of God would meet you in that because that's one life. That's not two lives. That's not hypocrisy, but some of us don't see the movement of God in our life because we have concealed sin in our life. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, you guys are hypocrites and that's not so with my people. It's not so with my people. So we can't hide from God, so let's not hide from one another. Lastly, the truth of the Christian life is the closer you are to grace, the greater the offense of sin. The closer you get to grace, the greater the offense of sin in your life. And you're like, what what do you mean, Josh? I mean this. The, The more you've experienced the gospel in your life, the more you see the offense of sin in your life, and you are willing to engage that and fight that. At the end of the Apostle Paul's life, he tells Timothy, here's all I know, Timothy. Jesus has come to save sinners, and I'm the worst of those sinners. And that is the height of spiritual maturity. The Apostle Paul, dynamic, the same guy that wrote Philippians chapter 3 that was like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. That guy is also the guy that's like, here's all I know. Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am the worst. The more you see what Christ has done for you, the more you are moved to confess sin. But listen, there's something happening in the gospel that's so important for us to understand to live this out. Because the gospel is ultimately a story of guilt. A story of you being guilty and Jesus taking your guilt to the cross and then you living a life that believes that Jesus actually took your guilt. And so what we have to recognize is that we have a Savior who has already taken our guilt. And so when you realize you're not guilty, then you are free to admit guilt. So this whole thing is really a gospel story that says, do you trust that you are free from all guilt? That Christ has truly paid it all. And because he's paid it all, you are now being inwardly transformed to love what Jesus loves. And to do what Jesus did and to pray like Jesus prayed and to act like Jesus acted and desire what Jesus desired. Because Jesus has taken your guilt, you are now guilt-free So you are free to admit guilt. So the story is over and over and over again, you taking your guilt back to Christ and receiving his grace, and that is the antidote to hypocrisy. How do you not act like a hypocrite 
You take your guilt to Christ. You take your guilt to your community, and then you freely receive the grace of God, and you walk in that day after day after day, and it ultimately leads to you living one life, not two lives. And Grace Church, may we be a people who live one life. Because what the world is desperate to see is a group of people who live one life. And that one life looks, looks so different than the ways of this world. It looks like an upside-down kingdom. It looks like a countercultural reversal of the world's values, and they have no idea what to do with it because you are the same person everywhere you go, and that person brings life. That's what Jesus wants for his disciples. And so as a church, let's, let's even practice this right now. Let's, let's come to the Lord now. The band's going to come back up and lead us in worship. We're going to have a chance in the moment. And, and I don't mean to, to scare us, but in front of us is an opportunity to worship in vain, or an opportunity for us to worship in spirit and truth. And so you go, how do I worship in spirit and truth? You confess your sins to God. Maybe after service you confess your sins one to another. And you again experience the grace that Jesus offers us. So would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we thank you so much that you have done away with our guilt and God we thank you so much that this, this passage in Mark chapter 7 is actually a picture of the gospel that the gospel is the good news that Christ has paid our guilt he's taken it away and therefore we can confess our guilt so God we come before you confessing that there are times when we are Pharisees God, we confess to you that there are times where we honor you with our lips and our hearts are far from you. And God, there are times when we harbor sin in our hearts and we know that dishonors you. But God, this morning we want to recommit to live one life. This morning we want to recommit to the way of Jesus. So God, as the church, would you be among us now as we continue in worship? And we commit our lives again to the grace of Jesus. And we pray all of that in his name. Amen.